As we go now to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, you light our lamp and enlighten our darkness. Your way is perfect and your word always proves true. You are a shield for all who take refuge in you. Enlighten us now by the power of your spirit that we may know and keep your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's word to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. And I just want to read together the first eight verses of Romans chapter 12. And consider that in light of uh, Lord's Day 21 of the Catechism. So Romans chapter 12, we'll begin our reading at verse 1. And let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. We've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism on the Apostles' Creed and thinking about the various teachings in the Apostles' Creed, seeing about God, and we typically divide the Apostles' Creed, as we say in question 24, into three parts. God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our deliverance, God the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Um, But as one commentator put it, this marks kind of the entry into almost a fourth section of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, when we move out of our definition of the Holy Spirit to begin to think about the church. Um, He says that as we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, there's sort of a fourth part of the creed that follows. And this is how Caspar Olivianus, one of the writers and the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, talked about this last part of the creed um, that talks about the communion of saints and the forgiveness of sins. Um, he He said this, It contains the effect of all that has gone before. For unless we want to say that in vain the Father sent the Son, in vain the Son suffered and rose again, and in vain the Holy Spirit was promised and sent, we must believe the effect of all these things. Namely, that in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Father builds for himself a new people. Some people have said, is this last part of the creed really about the Holy Spirit? And I kind of like that approach to say it's actually really part of the whole work of God. It describes what God the Father has done by his Son through the Holy Spirit. What has God done? What is the effect of all that has gone before it? 
Why did the Father create? Why did the Son deliver? Why did the Spirit sanctify? And all of it is to build a people. Uh, to build a church. Uh, the church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, and the rest that follows are all the effect of the work of the triune God. It's all that God has accomplished uh, for his people. Um, and we, re- we see this reflected in how question 54 begins its answer. I believe that the Son of God, through his spirit and word. Uh, the church is built by the Son of God. Uh, By calling Jesus the Son of God, what does it remind us of? That he's the Son of the Father. It's the Son of the Father who builds the church. And how does he build the church? Through his Spirit. You see, the whole effect of the church is built by the working of the triune God. By the Word. And where we have the Word if it were not for the working of the Spirit. Um, And so what we're saying in these things is, this is what the triune God has produced. This is the effect for which God works in the world. He works to create a church. And that's what Paul is talking about, the church, um, in, in, this, in this short text we read from Romans 12, how we are not just saved individually, but saved with one another and in one another. Um, how that church should work, how that church should function, how we should think about it. And this Lord's Day helps us to think about the church. And we want to think about the church in four ways this evening. I know, four, but it'll be okay. Four ways this evening that I want to think about the church. We read here about the church constructed, the church comforted, the church called, and the church covered. That's how we can think of these three questions in the light of God's word as an understanding of God's word concerning the church. We think of the church constructed, comforted, called, and covered. Uh, The church is constructed. That's what question 54 teaches us. The church is built by God. Um, God has put us together um, as one body. Uh, We don't have the same function. God has given us each function. He's put the functions together so that, as Paul says in verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. God has put us together in a certain way for a certain purpose. Um, And how does Christ build his church? By the Spirit through the ministry of the Word. Uh, One commentator said, the Spirit stands first, For by him the word is given, and without him the word cannot accomplish anything. Um, By the Spirit, through the word. This is how God has always built his church. The church has always been gathered by God together. Uh, And it's always been gathered by the Spirit. By the Spirit, through his word. Uh, This is how the church is gathered. But notice the Catechism also makes the point, this is how the church is protected and preserved. We don't just need the Spirit to gather the church, and He doesn't just gather us together then to go find our way on our own, Um, but the Lord also protects His church by His Spirit and Word. He preserves His church by the Spirit and the Word, and we need that protection. When we see the threats that exist to the church in this world, um, there can be a tendency to panic. I think the more we see our world fracturing, the more we see the bad things that are happening in the world, there are some people that seem to be panicking um, as if 
Just because the world is going awry, somehow that means the church is not still being governed and protected. That doesn't mean we bury our head in the sand as to what's happening in the world. But at the same time, we recognize that we are being watched over. Uh, We are not left to make our own way in the world. Um, That there is no cause for God's people to be so concerned as if we don't have a helper. As if we don't have someone who's protecting us and watching over us. Um, We have to trust that God's appointed helper and the means for our protection and preservation, the word of God, are sufficient to do the work that God has set for it. That's how we continue to protect the church. Uh, When people say, what what are we going to do with all these new ideas that are coming? And it seems like the world is changing in its ideas of things so rapidly that we don't even remind... You know, we wouldn't have believed 20 years ago we could be where we are today. How, are we, how do we fight that? How do we deal with that? Well, it's the Word of God that will help us. The Word of God teaches us the truth. The Word of God guides us. God knew the world we'd be facing. Even when 20 years ago we had no idea this would be the world we'd be facing. God knew exactly what world we'd be facing. And God gave us a Word fit to meet that world. And we should not lose confidence in the word of God. And that the spirit through his word will continue to protect the church and to preserve the church in this world. That's our hope. That's our trust. And that God will continue to build his church through the spirit and the word. That's how he's always done it. Um, And notice, what else do we confess? When does God build the church? Um, The catechism is wonderful on this. From the beginning of the world... To its end. From the beginning of the world to its end. Ever since sin entered the world and made a division between humanity and their God, Christ has been building a church. Um, Just the minute that the devil tried to tear apart the relationship of God with his people and drive enmity between God and man, Christ began building his church. It's been happening from the beginning of the world. Ever since the fall of mankind, Christ has been building a church. Building a church against which the gates of hell will not prevail. Um, He will build it until it's built. And that's the confidence we have in this world as well. Uh, What will stop the building of the church of Christ? Nothing. The church will be built from the beginning of the world. Christ had a flock he was going to gather. He knew those who were his when he came and died for them. He's been gathering them by his spirit. He will not stop gathering them until they are all gathered. All those for whom the Lord Jesus Christ died. And we can have that confidence as well. When is he going to build his church? He's been building it from the beginning. He'll build it to the end. And what will stop him from building his church? Nothing. If the gates of hell can't hold against the building project of the Lord Jesus Christ. What other power in the world would would hold? That's the point. The Lord is on the move. He's on the march against those who try to huddle in their little pathetic fortresses. The, the, The gates are bending under the strain of the weight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day they will break in. And the church will be fully built. And the Lord will establish his people. That should be our hope as well. He will build his church from the beginning of the world to the end. Um, And who belongs to this church? Who are part of this church? 
Oh, well, that's a wonderful testimony we have too. That who does God gather this church from, from the beginning of the world to the end? The uh, people out of the entire human race. That's the vision John has of the church at the end of the world. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Everyone is fit to be in the church. Every person is qualified to be in the church. That's all you need to come to the church. Who is the call open to? It's open to anybody who's human. Any human being is welcome. And the glory is God will call out of the whole world that he's made, out of every tribe and tongue and people and race, his people. It'll be a church gathered from everyone. Um, that's who will be part of the church. Uh, there is no one who can say, I'm, I'm not fit to be a member of the church. All you have to say to them is, are you a human being? You're fit to be a member of the church. Um, God is building his church from all people. If you believe, you are a member of this community now and forever. Um, and what is the church that God's building? What is this institution that God is building by His Spirit in the Word? It's a community chosen for eternal life and united by faith. That's what it means to be in Christ. We are one body in Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. It means to be that community that He's chosen for eternal life and united by faith. Um, he's not left us alone in the world. He's not left us with a situation where it's all just about your individual relationship with Christ. As important as that is, he's created us in a family. We are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Um, united by the same faith in the same Lord. A chosen community that he calls by his spirit through the word. For what purpose? So that we would live so that we would have life. That's the purpose for which we've been brought into Christ, to be united to him and to be united in this life with one another. Well, again, there's a helpful summary um, of this question that, that, can, that reads this way. When they were dead in their sins, Christ raised them up as reconciled to himself and through faith renews them to eternal life. He unites them to himself like a bride, so that every true member of this people might have fellowship with Christ and mutual fellowship among themselves, both in this life and in the one to come. I believe that I am numbered among these people and will never be removed from them. Once we're admitted to the true people of God, once we are brought into the family of God by our God, we will never cease to be part of that family. Um, it's a family we're in together, right? So look around these people. You're going to have to get used to them. Um, but that's one of the glories, right? Our members now and members always of the church. There's a comfort that should come to the church by those words, that you are and will always be a member of Christ. Um, we should take the comfort. Um, the privileges of membership are then outlined in question 55. So question 54 sort of helps us to say what a church is, what the church is that Christ is building. Question 55 is more about the relationship. Uh, more talking about the relation of the living members of Christ, both to Christ their head 
and on the one hand, and to their living members on the other hand. Um, what is the relationship that exists in church? How should we think about that? And that should bring us a measure of comfort that we have communion with Christ. Um, we are helped to understand that we have communion with Christ. What does it mean to have communion with Christ? Uh, usually when we talk about communion, maybe your mind goes to the Lord's Supper. Um, but that's a picture of the communion that we have with Christ. It's to be members of his body, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.30. It's to be united in the spirit with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. It's the answer to Christ's prayer, um, his high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 20 through 23, where we read, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Um, there cannot be a closer kind of communion than the communion the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit enjoy in the triune God. It's a unity and communion beyond our ability really to fathom. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a threeness that cannot be separated from a oneness. And in a beautiful way, Jesus is saying we are being admitted into that oneness with God. It's a glory that we can confess. I don't think we can understand it fully. But certainly Christ's prayer is answered in the communion of the saints. That we come into communion with our God. With his son, Jesus Christ. And we are so intimately connected with him that we share in all of his treasures. Now, that's also what the catechism talks about, uh, that we are admitted to communion with Christ and we, we share in all of his treasures. Um, I don't know if you have any treasures. Don't have to say. Um, don't want anyone to know what your treasures are. Um, but, you know, if, if I said, you may have all of my treasures, um, I hate to break it to you, it's not that great an offer. Um, but if someone who's tremendously wealthy says, you may have all of my treasures, that's a wonderful offer. And when we come into communion with Christ, that's what he's saying. I share with you all of my treasure. All that's mine becomes yours. That's how intimate the fellowship with us becomes, Christ says. And we wouldn't have time to consider all the treasures of Christ because everything is his. But even if we just limit ourselves to some of the most precious treasures that Christ has that he shares with us, they are wonderful to consider. What is his treasure? Uh, the greatest of his treasures is his father. And his father becomes our father. Um, he has his father's love. His Father's love becomes our love. Um, we share His name. That's one of the treasures that He has. 
Revelation 3.12, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. We receive the Father. We receive the Father's love. We receive the name of the Son. We receive the merits of the Son. His merits become our merits. Romans 4, 24 to 25, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. They will be counted to we who believe. His merits become mine. His inheritance in heaven becomes my inheritance, becomes your inheritance. His glory becomes your glory. We think about the glory of Christ. It's a wonderful thing to think about. Do we really reckon with the fact that we share his glory? We read that that was his prayer. Father, I desire that they whom also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. I've given them that glory. And I want them to see my glory where I am. That's what belongs to each of us individually as Christians and belongs to all of us together. Um, And sometimes the the individual part is the harder part to believe. It's easier to say God has given his love to the church. He's given his merits to the church. He's given these things to the church. But sometimes it can be harder to reckon with the fact that he's given those things to you. Right, it's, It can be easy to say the church has the glory of Christ. It's harder for me to say I have the glory of Christ. But that's what God has done. By bringing us into communion with Christ, all of these treasures have become ours individually. And we are united in Christ with all of these other brothers and sisters who share in these gifts together. And not only do we share in that treasure individually and together, we're also told that we share in his gifts. They might say, now, well, how much better could it be, his treasure and his gifts? I mean, is there really a major difference between those two things? Well, I think one of the ways we can distinguish them is to think his treasure is for everyone. His gifts are poured out to different people in different ways. Um, We all receive some of the same gifts from Christ. We all receive forgiveness of sins, righteousness, eternal life. We all share those common gifts. Uh, but there are also many different gifts that the Lord distributes. Um, and before we, we, we go into think about that, it's worth meditating over, isn't it a wonderful thing that we have such a rich God who is so generous with the things that are his? Like that one person put it, it's a great comfort to us poor sinners that our Lord is so rich and that we share in common. But one of the reasons we talk about the church as we're called together is so that all of the different gifts we have can be brought together. So we're comforted to know that we're in Christ and we've received all of his treasure and we receive all of these gifts. But the church's calling then is a high calling to take the different gifts that we've been given and use them for one another. And that's the second part as we think about the communion of the saints. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. Um, 
Paul says in Romans 12, we don't all have the same function. We're all one, but we all don't function the exact same way. We have gifts that differ according to the grace that's given us and why. So we can use them together. It's a wonderful sense and there's a lot that we share in common as Christians, but that there's a lot in the church that we don't share in common. That's a blessing. That we all have different gifts. That we've been given different gifts to help the church to be used for our fellow members. And we're reminded here by Paul that we're called to a certain action then as God's people. And what is that action? It's to use the gifts we've been given. Um, Now, again, we always have to say, all of us have been given gifts that will serve the church. There's no one who can say, I am entirely ungifted. Usually what we mean by that is we look at someone else who has a gift we'd really like, and we say, I wish I was that kind of person. Um, You look at someone who's very good at evangelism and you think, I stumble every time I talk to anybody about Jesus. I wish I could do evangelism like that. Or we look at someone who's very hospitable and we say, that person is so hospitable. I really wish I could do hospitality like that. That's usually what we mean when we say, I don't have any gifts. We're usually saying, I don't have someone else's gifts. What Paul's saying here is everyone has a function. They just differ according to the grace that's given to us. But that's one of the glories of being called together as the church. We're called, given gifts, and we're called to what certain action? To use those gifts in the service of one another. And it's interesting that Paul talks here all about, as his examples, gifts that profit other people. You notice that? Um, In in Romans 4 uh, through 8, we all have many members. The members do not all have the same function. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, if service, if teaching, if exhortation, if contribution, if leadership, you don't do any of those things for yourself. What do you do those things for? You do those things for other people. Right? The prophet speaks so that people can hear. Same with the, exhorta- the one who gives exhortation, the one who teaches. They do that so people hear. You contribute so other people benefit. Right? So Paul uses all these examples that are not gifts that have, that have your gain in their minds, but that profit other people as examples of how we use the gifts we're given to serve one another. None of us have anything we've not been given by the Lord, and so those things that we have been given are to be used in the service and enrichment of our other members. That's the action we're called to do, to use our gifts. And we're called to use our gifts to to achieve a certain result. So everyone's called to action in the church. We're all called to use the gifts that we've been given. And what's the result that we're trying to to bring about? Uh, We're to use our gifts for the service and the enrichment of the other members. Um, I'm particularly to use my gifts hoping to enrich others through them. That's how we should view our gifts and to think about our gifts in the church. Not just to serve them. I like that, that phrase in the catechism. Not just to serve them, but to enrich them. We've all been given treasure. We've all been given gifts by our God. They're all gifts of His grace. We have been enriched. And why have we been enriched? 
so that we might enrich others. So we might use those gifts to achieve that result. And we're to use those gifts with a certain attitude. There's a certain attitude that should go along with our actions. And what's that attitude? That we do these things readily and joyfully. That we do these things readily and joyfully. We have a duty to our God. We have a duty to one another. But God doesn't want us to act out of mere duty. Right? Um, If you needed a pastoral visit and I visited you and said, I'm here because it's my job. You would not feel very warm and fuzzy about that visit. It would not be nearly as helpful as if you knew I was doing it readily and joyfully to try to enrich you. And the same thing is true of any of of us using any of our gifts. It would be no good if someone just thought, well, I'm doing this because I have to. Um, No, we're, we're to do these things readily and joyfully. As we read this morning from 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You've probably heard that before in connection with offerings being collected, and sometimes that's a good time to be reminded that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. But why does the Lord love a cheerful giver? Because the Lord is a cheerful giver. He delights to give gifts to his people. He delights to pour out grace on us. When you go to God and say, may I have more grace, he says, certainly. Um, If you go to God and say, I think I'm lacking grace, I don't think I have enough, he says, you may have more. He gives more grace. We have a generous, cheerful, giving God. Um, And because our God is that way, it's good for us to be that way. To give to one another out out of joy and readily. Um, that shows the love we have for one another. That's why this is a high calling and a difficult calling. Um, Because we don't always do things that way. Uh, We don't always use our gifts that way. And we see how how easy it is for us to fail. My dad says sometimes the the calling in Scripture is is like a high wire. There's only one way to walk it correctly and a lot of ways to fall off. enriching them, or we don't have the right attitude in doing those things. There are many things that we fail at. The bar is set so high. There are just things we flat read in Scripture and say, come on, really? Philippians 2, 2 through 4, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we say, sure, Paul, that's fine. I, I can do that. I checked that off this morning. No, we, we look at that and say, really? How am I supposed to do that? And that's why we need to be constantly admonished and, and, and taught that by the scriptures. Um, One person said, we need to be constantly admonished since by nature we are so deeply immersed in selfishness which is overcome with so much difficulty. Watch and pray that you might not enter temptation for the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. We need to pray that the Lord would fill us with the love of God and to think about how we glorify God when we do these things well. 
It's a high calling. It's a difficult calling. But the thing we want more than anything else is to glorify our God. And when the church loves one another as we ought, it glorifies God. A Tertullian who lived between 160 and 225 once wrote about how the world perceived the church in his day. He said, look, they say, this is in the voice of the world, look, they say, how they Christians love one another, for they themselves hate one another, and how they are ready to die for each other, for they themselves are readier to kill one another. Um, Do non-Christians look at us today and say, look how they love one another? Look how they're ready to die for one another. You see how powerful a witness that was in his day? How powerful a witness that is for our Lord? We're reminded that it's a high calling. And maybe that's why we need to be reminded that the next article of the church is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Because we realize that we fail in this calling. And we need to remind, be reminded when we think about that high calling and we think about how short we've fallen that we are not tempted to despair. Um, it's, not my, it's not my job to sort of fill you with guilt and then try to wind you up and send you out into the world. Um, we have a high calling, we have a lofty calling, but we also have to remember that we're a forgiven people. The church is covered. That's the hope of God's people. Um, and there sometimes can be nothing more difficult to believe than that we're a forgiven people. I was really struck by a comment that I came across in, in preparing the sermon when Oliviana said, there is nothing more difficult to believe than the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing more difficult to believe than the forgiveness of sins. That my sins are actually forgiven. That's one of the hardest things to believe. And yet this is where true happiness, true blessedness is found in knowing that sins are forgiven. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's Psalm 32.1. All of our sins are forgiven us because they've been covered by the death and life of the Son of God. Uh, we're forgiven because our sins are covered. The Catechism gives us that sobering reminder that we are going to be sinners until we die. Um, I remember hearing an old pastor talk once and he said, was talking to younger ministers and said, you know, I thought at one time there were sins that would, that would die as I got older, that I would just kind of outgrow. And he said, you know, as I got older, what I learned is that you don't outgrow sin. If you want to get rid of it, you have to kill it. You don't outgrow it. Um, we're going to be sinners until we die. We're going to struggle all our lives the Catechism rightly says, with our sin. Um, but we believe that they will not be imputed to us. And that's what we believe when we say our sin, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. As one person put it, they will not be imputed to us, but pardoned on the basis of Christ's merit. All of my sin is forgiven me by the gracious goodness of God. And God does this in such a way that he erases all memory of both guilt and punishment, just as if I had never sinned or had no sin. Therefore, when I say I believe in the forgiveness of sins, I'm saying I trust that I am already now blessed. We are a forgiven people. Sin is present in our lives, but it's pardoned. We have to remember that for our comfort. 
If we believe in Christ Jesus, our sins might be present, but they're pardoned. And if Christ dwells in us, then that sin that's present in us, but we must never be at peace with. Right? To recognize we'll be sinners all our lives could be an excuse to say, I'm always going to be a sinner, what can you do? Well, the Bible tells us what to do. It's we're to fight against sin. Just because it's present doesn't mean we're at peace with it. Uh, we seek to fight against sin all our lives because believing forgiven sinners have been given the grace to obey God. That's one of the blessings of the new covenant is that the next sin is not inevitable. We're not powerless against our sins. Uh, we can resist. Jeremiah thirty-two forty says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. We have the power to fight against the presence of sin. We must not be at peace with it in our lives. But what we can be certain of is that on account of our sins, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we will never come into judgment. My judgment fell on Christ at his cross. My sins were buried with him in his grave. And when he arose, he left them there. Uh, They are still buried there, uh, never to rise again. That's why when he comes for his people, he comes not to judge, but to save. That's the good news of Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's what it means to be a covered church, to know that we have forgiveness of sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. So thanks be to our triune God for building a church, and not just for building it, but for including us in it, that we might enjoy the communion of the saints and forgiveness of sins because of what he's done by his son. May his name be praised now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word of grace. We thank you for the promises that are ours in Christ. And we thank you for the certainty that we can have in your triune work. And so we're thankful for this reminder of the church that you're building and that we are part of that church. We pray that all here would put their faith and trust in Christ and be included in that church and enjoy all the treasures and benefits. And then help us, Lord, to use our gifts readily and joyfully to enrich one another out of the great love we have for one another and for you. Help us in these things by your spirit, we pray, and forgive us our sins, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.